0: Ready, set, go, read numbers, Um, welcome, yes, I do have a black eye, again, I'm not wearing makeup, just get that out of the way, especially for the people that may be watching online. Um, It was, I did not get it from Bible study, it was from martial arts, so. You get a Bible study black guy, you're in the wrong Bible study. <laughs> what did the other guy look like? Yeah. He, he got off surprisingly well. Um, <clears throat> so, numbers. We did an introduction last week. We talked about some of the themes of numbers. Today, we're going to jump in to chapter one. Numbers is we're about a year from uh, the Exodus, or two years from the Exodus event, I should say. And the, the Israelites, basically, they, they leave, Israel, leave Egypt, they get to Mount Sinai, and they spend a year camped around Mount Sinai. And that year is mostly the preparations at the end of Exodus uh, after chapter 20, all of Leviticus, and then these opening sections of Numbers So we're still at the base of Mount Sinai in Midian, where Moses saw the burning bush, Israel hasn't let out, haven't set out to camp yet. But we talked last week how God's transitioning them from a people who were slaves in Egypt for four centuries to not just a nation, but in particular, this nation is going to be God's army. And that's a theme that dominates the early chapters of Numbers is these are God's God's troops, God's command uh, forces. And this is important because... The, the reason for the exodus and bringing them into the promised land is twofold. One is to give them the land that God promised to Abraham for his offspring. But two is in doing that, they are to be the judgment on the Canaanites. And this is what gets forgotten. Numbers, uh, or the, the book of, excuse me, the events of the exodus were so that Israel could come out and be sharpened or be honed into God's people who would then go and drive out the Canaanites. Not because, is it because God hates Canaanites? Not, not because they're Canaanites, but because of the evils and the sins that are committed. There comes a point in every nation where God, the, 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 it's like there's a big bowl. The imagery that God used in Genesis chapter 15, there's a big bowl or a cup of iniquity, of evil, of, of horribleness. And the sins of the people slowly fill that cup up over time. And at some point, there comes a time when the cup is full. No more evil can be held in that place or amongst those people. And at that point is when God's judgment is filled out over the people. And this is not something that God just did to the Canaanites. This is something that God did to Israel itself. That's what the Babylonian captivity is all about. That's what all the prophets are warning Israel of. The book of Revelation picks up the imagery and applies it to the judgment of God on empires in history, whether Rome in the first century or whether the future empire, uh, whatever it may be in the future. Regardless, that's the imagery. So God does that through different means through flood, through deportation, through famine, through conquering. And it happens in the history of the Old Testament. Now, it doesn't happen in a one to one correspondence because sometimes God seems to allow wickedness to go on much longer than it should. And sometimes He judges it very swiftly and very quickly. So there's no one to one correlation. You just turn the TV off when people on TV start saying, This hurricane was God's judgment on this city or this. It doesn't work that way. We can't say that without 100% sure prophetic insight. What we can do is do what Jesus told His disciples to do whenever there was a natural disaster. Use that to check yourself. Check yourself before God because everyone is deserving of God's judgment if we're going by who deserves what in terms of evil. And people that die in one disaster aren't necessarily as people, as individuals, any worse than anybody else. But there comes a point in God's ordering of history when, when judgment falls. So that's what God's preparing Israel to be. They're going to be His instrument of judgment. The Old Testament is not God likes Israel and hates everybody else, so anybody that Israel conquers, God's cool with that. It doesn't work that way. When God sends them in, they're going to be specific people groups that He says to drive out. He doesn't tell them to drive out the Philistines. He doesn't tell them to drive out the Egyptians from Egypt. He doesn't tell them to keep going up into Assyria and up into all these places. No, it's very specific. Beware of overgeneralizations in that regard in the Old Testament because it's a stereotype that floats around in popular culture and even among Christians and from pulpits. <clears throat> so Numbers chapter 1, God's going to start now ordering, bringing order out of the chaos of this rabble of, of former slaves that have camped around the base of Mount Sinai. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. In the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month, the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. First day, second month, second year. Alright? He said, Take a census of the whole Israelite community, by their clans and families, listing every man by name. NIB here says one by one, but the Hebrew literally says to their skulls. It's a way, it's an idiom of way of saying each person. Only have one skull, so one skull, one person. Uh, we don't have that idiom, but it's a it's a fun one. So everyone, one by one, to their names. You and Aaron are to number by their divisions all the men in Israel, twenty years old or more, who are able to serve in the army. Number by their divisions. This is a military terminology. Those who are able to serve in the army. So God's not counting every person. This is not just a general census to gauge demographics for future, you know, civic projects. This is, get muster the troops. We have got to establish your army that's going to be fighting the battles that I'm calling you to. One man from each tribe, each the head of his family, is to help you. Head of his family does not mean the husband, and he's got a wife and some kids at home. No, this is the this is the lifted up one of the father's house, if you wanted to say it literally in Hebrew. This is the one, the father's house, and that's what it was uh, head of his family is in Hebrew it's the house of the fathers. And that's a bigger unit than a nuclear family. That's kind of like your family so that's the patriarch. And among each father's house, there will be one who is lifted up from that, one head person. I think it uses the word head, Rosh one chief, and chief is a better way to render these people. They're not princes, because uh, they don't rule, over th- they're chiefs. They're the ones who, these are the big men of this family. This is the family champion. This is the one who's going to be in charge. The, 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 the actual patriarch maybe in his 80s or 90s. This is going to be the one who calls the shots for the father's house. The family groups. So again, don't think of it just as a family, These a the family groups. These are the names of the men who are gonna assist you. So every tribe is gonna be numbered, there's gonna be a census of the military men and it's gonna be done by the one who would be leading the military groups all together. The head guy from each tribe, the head of the father's houses. So from Reuben, from the tribe of Reuben, uh, Elitzur son of Shadur, all right? Now here's where we start losing people because these names are weird. Yeah. We'll give you a little hint when you're reading Hebrew names in the Old Testament. One, pronounce every letter. So if there's two vowels next to each other, pronounce them both. They don't cluster together like they do in English. Uh, and two, the I's, like the letter I, is always pronounced like an I, like pig, or E, like in Tahiti. Okay, so you don't ever pronounce them I's. Even saying Isaiah or Elijah is wrong, technically, but those have become Anglicized, so... Don't fight it, but for weird names, always pronounce the I as an it or an e, pronounce every vowel, and what you'll get is, Eliezer, son of Shedeur, okay? That's how it works, so you just pronounce over. So, Elizur, son of Shedeur. From Simeon, Shalumiel, son of Zerishaddai, okay? This is how it works. I'm not going to read all of them, but just to give you a, from Judah, Nashan, son of Aminadab. Okay. These names. He goes on to say from Issachar, uh, Nethanel, son of Zuar, from Zebulun, Eliab, son of Helon, from the sons of Joseph, because there's two tribes among Joseph. Remember from Genesis. So from Ephraim, Elishama, son of Am- Amihud, from Manasseh, Gamaliel, son of Pedazur. From Benjamin, Abidon, son of Gideoni. From Dan, Ahiezer, son of Ami Shaddai. From Asher, Hagiel, son of Akron. From Gad, Eliasaf, son of Deuel. It's a tricky one because there's a bunch of vowels all together. From Naphtali, Ahira, son of Ena. These are the men appointed to the, from the community, the leaders of their ancestral tribes. They were heads of the of Israel. Heads of the, what do your Bibles say? What? Thousands? Thousands. Clans? Clans. Yeah. So here's where we're going to ignore the translations because they don't agree in so many places. The word is eleph. These are the heads of the elephs. Alright? Eleph. Now, eleph is a Hebrew word. Like eleph, like the English word elephant. Uh, Eleph. E-L-E-P-H. Eleph has a range of meanings. At its most basic, elif means ox, like a, like a bull. Elif also means company, or division. Elif also means clan. Elif also means one thousand. This is the range of meaning that the word elif has. Now the reason I'm harping on this is because the biggest problem in the book of numbers that scholars have always had is the numbers, the numbers of people. Because taken at face value, the numbers that we're about to see result from the census would yield a population of between two and three million people. Now, we think big deal. Well, Metro Charlotte's got what, a million people, give or take? So like three cities of Charlotte camped around one mountain? How's that going to work? <laughs> Moving through the Red Sea in a day? If Even if they moved all at once, ten wagons wide. So let's say every family had its own little wagon, which is not even true then. But let's say they did. And you stacked them ten wide. And they all set out. That train of wagons would be 250 miles long. When Moses speaks to all of the children of Israel... How do you speak to three million people when God provides manna and quail in the wilderness? These are the questions that that skeptical scholars have looked at and asked. The response from literalists who said, no, elif means thousand, and these are the numbers of thousands of people, is they've said, well, God God created the world. The rest is just easy. And that's true. You know, how could God provide for this many people in the wilderness? Because he split the Red Sea. Like, he's going out of his way in the book of Exodus to show... I can handle the natural elements. Okay? So it's not a question, when you get to the book of Numbers, of saying, well, that's just too big to be believable. Because God can do the unbelievable. So it's not that. That's, that shouldn't be the objection. And it is for skeptical scholars and those who say, well, the supernatural can't happen, and these are is uh, Hebrew folk tales that were collated over the years, blah, 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 blah. But that's not how we approach it as, as as followers of Jesus who put his stock in the Old Testament. However... That doesn't mean that we have to embrace a crass literalism which seems to introduce impossibilities into the text which conflict with other parts of the text. For instance, there are passages where God talks about um, Israel in Exodus 23, verse 29, and it's also in Deuteronomy 7. It says, you were the least of all the peoples. You were the smallest of the nations. Well, that's weird if their population is 3 million people because at the time, in all of Canaan... At that time, there might have been one million people. Maybe. The the size of Israel's army, in comparison to armies of the ancient Near East, would be overwhelming. Israel, the entire nation of Israel, was panicked on the bank of the Red Sea. Now, first you gotta fit three million people on the Gulf of the Bank of the Red Sea, even shoulder to shoulder, that's gonna span acres and acres and acres bigger than Any shoreline of the Dead Sea. But beyond that, they get panicked. This is back in Exodus. They get panicked by 600 chariots. 600 chariots. Even if you were just chucking babies at the chariots as weapons, 3 million people would easily crush them. I don't recommend chucking babies as weapons. But even if you were going... The point is that the numbers that are given in the first chapter of Numbers... If you read them as thousands, and NIV does it, King James does it, um, New American Standard does it, they all just kind of translate eleph as thousands in the rest of this chapter. If you read it at face value, it doesn't seem to make sense with how that word eleph is used elsewhere in Scripture. When Gideon is approached by God, and he says, you know, I'm the least of my my, my, my clan is the least among the tribe. His, he says, my eleph is the least among the tribe. So to say Elif means thousand and that's just what it is, there's some difficulties there. One of the most, there's a couple of plausible things and and biblical, evangelical biblical scholars have noted this. So if you pick up a good study Bible, like Archaeology Study Bible has a whole article on the numbers and numbers. Um, I'm sure ESV Study Bible and others probably do as well, New Orleans especially. But they'll basically say, look, it works like this. Here's where scholars are divided. No no one answer is free of difficulties. But, elif probably means, in the Hebrew of this time, probably has the meaning of division. Or group. Or regiment, even. Like a group that's bigger than the father's house. It's bigger than the bet of oath. But it's smaller than the tribe. So somewhere in between there is an elif. Does that mean it means a thousand? Not necessarily. You know, like when we say, we do it, we, we don't have a lot of examples in this in English because English is a much more mathematically precise language than ancient Hebrew. Um, Hebrew didn't have numerals, by the way. You know, numbers, one, two, three, digits. That's an Arabic thing. Like, that's all Arabic. We got that from the Arabs. The Hebrews didn't have that, they had divisions. So you had elifs, and then you had the word that would be translated as hundreds, and then you had multiples of ten. And that's kind of it. Their number system is not super intricate. So, to approach this from a numerical mathematical standpoint, you're already a step away from how the Hebrews in the second millennium BC would have even looked at. Rather, think of it when we say, how many people were there? Oh, dozens. Dozen means what? Twelve. So. If, if somebody was like, yeah, there were dozens of people there, and somebody said, and then you did a head count, and it really ended up being 39, or let's say, it ended up being 21 people, and you're like, oh, there were dozens there. Nope, nope, there were not dozens there. There was one dozen plus nine people. That's not dozens. You're wrong. You're a liar, right? You wouldn't do that. You just... Dozens is just kind of a way of estimating or coming to a general... So there's, there's a lot of that when it comes to Hebrew numbering. They kind of round up or round down. Tens, fifties, hundreds, elves. Anything beyond that is just too big to really get into. So why, why do I harp on this and why do we spend so much time on it? Because you may all have no problem believing in three million people being upheld in the desert by God and blah, blah, blah. But history, archaeology, everything we know about anthropology, everything we know about the state of things in the ancient Near East, all of that kind of speaks against this being literal numbers of this many thousands of people. However, you don't have to choose one or the other. Because you can say, well, well that's fine. These are, it's not talking about thousands. It's talking about elves. And elves are a numbering unit that's larger than 100, smaller than the tribe." So it could be anything. It could be groups of 150. It could be groups of an elf could have 500 people. An elf could have a thousand people. Could, it could be different. Each clan's elf could be a different size. You know, when, when Gideon says, "I'm the my elf is the smallest or the weakest of all," his elf could be smaller than another tribe's elf. Okay. So whenever you're reading it, just put that in your mind. It's gonna have apologetic payoff because some people their stumbling block will be. I don't believe that the earth was created 6,000 years ago and God fed 3 million people in the wilderness. Well, you can look at it and say, well, you don't have to believe that because neither of those things are explicitly taught by the Bible. Some Christians believe it, and that's their interpretation that leads them, but you don't have that's, not, that's not where the rubber meets the road. So how many Israelites then in the book of Numbers? Low end estimate, it's going to give the number of the firstborn, and then the firstborn are going to be Twenty-two thousand two hundred and seventy-three, I think. Twenty-two elfs plus two hundred and seventy-three. So there's that's that could give you like a low-end range. Let's say each family had a firstborn, then that'd be twenty-two thousand families. All right? <clears throat> low-end ballpark figure, thirty thousand to fifty thousand people, somewhere in there. High end, a couple hundred thousand, maybe five hundred thousand. That's sort of the range that you have when you're thinking about this. Now, that's a lot easier to picture God gathering. How many How many people? You guys are Panther football fanatics. How many people fit in Bank of America Stadium? 72,000. 72,000. Okay. So think of Bank of America Stadium or maybe two or three Bank of America Stadiums worth of people. You could camp out that many people around outside, Right? You could speak to that many people, even if there was some transmission going on. You don't have to extrapolate that into the millions. And you don't have to because the text itself doesn't, have, doesn't necessarily mean that. So that's one of the, that's the, the today that I want to kind of ingrain in this because the opening chapter numbers, the whole book is divided by two lists of numbers. The census in chapter 1, the census in chapter 26. First generation census, the second generation census. So when you're reading these, for instance, let me buzz through the rest of this. These were the men appointed from the community of leaders, their ancestral tribes. These were the heads of the elphs of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men, whose names have been given, and they called the whole community together on the first day of the second month. Again, that's really hard if you got three million people. The people indicated their ancestry by their clans and families, and the men 20 years old or more were listed by name, one by one, to their skulls, as the Lord commanded Moses. So he counted them in the desert of Sinai. And then here's the census from the descendants of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, all the men, 20 years old or more, who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, one by one, according to the records of their clans and families. And that records is the word polagot. That's what Genesis was divided by. These are the descendants of. This is the records of. Um, So this is even this is harkening back to Genesis. The number from the tribe of Reuben was 46,500. Or, and this is how I'm going to read this, the number of the tribe of Reuben was 46 eliphs and five hundreds. That's what it literally reads in Hebrew: 46 elephs and five one hundreds. That's, that's all it said. From the descendants of Simeon, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were counted and listed by name one by one according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Simeon was 59 elephs and 300. All the men 20 years old who were able to serve in the army were listed by name according to the records of their clans and families. Sorry, this is for Gad. number of the tribe of Gad, 45 elephs, 6 one hundreds, and 50. This is how it's numbering the people. This is how it's breaking them down. From the descendants of Judah, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Judah was 74 elephs and 6 100s. From Issachar, all the men 20 years old, etc., etc., 54 elephs, 400. Zebulun was 57 elephs, 400. Joseph was 40 elephs, 5 100s. Manasseh was 32 elephs, 200s. Benjamin was 35 elephs, 400s. Dan was 62 elephs, 700s. Asher was 41 elephs, 500s. Naphtali was 53 elephs, 400s. These were the men counted by Moses and Aaron, the 12 leaders of Israel, each one representing his family. All the Israelites, 20 years old or more, who were able to serve in Israel's army were counted according to their families. The total number was 603 elephs, 550. Okay? I added all those up, and that's what it comes down to. Yeah, it does come up to it. Yeah. Here's the thing the numbers work mathematically if you take elephs as thousands. But they also work if you take elephs as elephs and just leap them as what's being added. There's no. This is why you pick up any numbers commentary and you're going to read about the scholarly discussion all about this. Going all the way back to the I pulled an article by George Mendenhall from the forties. It's one of the more authoritative articles and he traces the development of uh elf as a term and how it, it it would have applied originally to like these groupings, subgroup families, and then later it came to mean because those families grew. By the time of Israel, the elifs were around a thousand people or so, and so when you know the scripture is being edited and handed down and written and preserved and everything. They just kind of said, eh, Elif means thousands. But at the time that this is going on, it may not have had that meaning. Doug Stewart, one of my professors at Gordon Conley, he's an Old Testament scholar, in his commentary on Exodus, he talked about the the how it got to where it got to. He said the original meaning of Elf was meant ox. And in agricultural practices, you'd have like, or bull, you'd have like one ox and a number of female cattle and, and smaller cattle. So it came to the idea of, like, uh, the, the eleph the ox, meant the ox and the group of cattle that the ox was among. And so that gradually meant a group of however many. So it's kind of like saying, it, it kind of came to mean, like, almost herd or, or a group of within the herd. And then that later became the designation for any group of individuals that were roughly that number or so. A group of clans together would be an aluf. They'd have one leader, an aluf, the chief, the head of the father's house. And among that one chief would be those who were under his command. So an agricultural imagery came to be describing a military imagery, and eventually, later in Israel's history, that came to be reg- or, or calculated out by 50s, 100s, thousands. And that became the designation of the So... Regardless, if your eyes are glazing over and you're like, I don't care, just get to the point. Well, the point is, God is numbering his people according to organized subunits that can be given commands for military procedures. He's making an army. Those of you that have ever served in the army, you know regimented in the army. You've got the rank, and this is over this many people. And then this guy's over this many of these guys who are over this many people. And all the way up, well, God's doing that in Israel, He's creating them as His army. And He lists them by their clans, by their family names. Each tribe gets its day. Each tribe gets its official registry in the army of God. Now, that, for us, that's not a big deal. But if we had been enslaved for 400 years, you better believe we'd be extra proud of that. My family, my clan, my tribe on this day is counted in the official records of our people. In the eyes of everyone, we have a place. And so that's part of what's why this is preserved so heavily. It's why genealogies are preserved in the Bible. There, there, anybody ever, has anybody ever been uh, acknowledged in a book? Like somebody wrote a book and in the acknowledgments, uh, a couple of people have when you get the book, when you get your copy of the book, that's the first thing you look at, right? My friend Carmen, uh, Dr. Carmen I, she made a great analogy of this on, on when she preached at the Wheaton Chapel on numbers. And uh, she was saying, you know, the first thing I do when I get this book by my, at that time, PhD advi- or professor, you know, I flip to the acknowledgments. There's my name. I helped. I tracked down the footnotes. I formatted the bibliography, whatever. My name's right there. So I have meaning for her. The rest of us don't give a rip. I skip the acknowledgements every time because I don't care through the authors. You know, it's just like, we don't care. Okay, you dedicate it to your niece. Yay, I don't know your niece, so it has no meaning for me. But for Israel, this is kind of their call out, their acknowledgement, their, their dedication at the beginning. Last thing I'll mention, and then we're out of here. The names at the beginning of the numbers list. The names of the chiefs, The alufs, the the ones who are the heads of the father's house, their names, if you don't know Hebrew, their names just sound weird. But their names all have meaning. From Reuben, uh, the guy was, My God is strong, son of Shaddai is light. Shaddai is another word for God, exalted, almighty. So the names, My God is strong, God is light. Uh, the name uh, Shumiel means, my peace is God. And he was the son of, my rock is Shaddai. These are really impressive, pious, holy names. These names have meaning. Uh, and in general, they're all like positive. The funny one to me is Issachar, uh, Nathaniel, son of Zuar. Nathaniel literally means God's gift. So if you know anybody named Nathaniel, <laughs> they are literally God's gift. Whether God's gift to women is up to them, obviously. But um, the names have meaning. And if you go through and you look at the, the meaning of these names, they're all positive and pious. They're all impressive-sounding names. God is my rock. My strength is the Almighty. You know, all this kind of... But here's the thing, and it's the irony of numbers. This is These names, these leaders, are going to be the very ones who when the spies bring back the report, these leaders are the ones who say, we can't do it. Let's go back to Egypt. God is my rock becomes surprisingly uh, unaccepting of the fact that God could be his rock. These leaders, it should be a hall of fame, and it becomes a blacklist. Because all of these leaders with these awesome sounding names are all going to die in the desert. Because they refuse to live up to that God is actually what their name says he is. And so that's going to be kind of the the sad irony of the book of Numbers. But we're out of time. So next week we're going to pick up in Numbers 2. We're in the prep section, Numbers chapters 1 through 7 or so. Again, preparing Israel to move out. Get around chapter 10, Israel's going to move out. And then things crazy start happening. Um, so we will see you next week. Thanks a lot, everybody. Next week.